Chapter 15 of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 15. Character Studies. Such, in brief, are some of the forces which resulted in bringing Mrs. Remington to the door of the Belleville Parsonage on that evening of which I told you, to take a farewell view of what had for two years been her home. She was not so sad at heart as she might have been, not by any means so sad as some of her sisters have had occasion to be, before and since. Some of her experiences had been bitter, it is true, but many had been pleasant. She knew she was leaving a few whose friendship for her husband and herself would outlast time, and be a strong bond drawing heavenward. She knew also that there were some whom she was glad to leave, in the hope that she need never again meet them, socially at least until the time of grace had so changed them that they would not be to her the same that they were this day. They were not going out into desolation. A new home had promptly opened to receive them. Perhaps the young wife may be forgiven for cherishing a secret feeling of gratified pride over the thought that no sooner was her husband's name before the public as a possible candidate for vacant pulpits than two churches, both standing high on the list, simultaneously and unanimously called him churches very far superior to this which they were leaving, so far, indeed, as to cause some of the members of this church to open their eyes wide when they heard of the calls, and wonder whether they had not, after all, made a mistake. It is not my purpose to tell you the story of those last days, or to describe the parting from those few faithful ones. Such hours are hard to describe, and hard to endure." It was all over at last, and Mrs. Remington, as she dropped into an easy chair in the guest chamber of Mr. Chilton's elegant home, and waited for her husband to finish his toilet, prefatory to going down to the six o'clock dinner, felt that one chapter of her life was finished, and the page turned over to an entirely new experience. There was a little sense of satisfaction as she glanced about her on the luxurious appointments, and met everywhere the evidence of cultured taste, with unlimited means to gratify the same. She had not yet seen the house which was to be their home, but John had told her, with a significant smile, that that, too, was very different. There were people, it seemed, who could appreciate John. That, after all, was the uppermost thought in the young wife's heart. "'Isn't it a pretty room?' she said aloud. Then, before her husband could answer, "'Oh, John, while you are dressing, I might finish reading Aunt Hannah's letter to you.' Did you know she was acquainted with the Chiltons? Let me see. I was just at this sentence, wasn't I? It seems queer that you should be going to Robert Chilton's house. Perhaps he doesn't remember me, but in the old days we used to be very good friends. That was before he became famous as a politician, or had so much money. He may have changed for the worse. Money and politics have that effect, sometimes. He used to be good-hearted enough, and was a member of the church from his boyhood though I never thought him remarkable for his piety, but his wife, well, I am an old woman, and the daisies I planted on Elsie Chilton's grave must have died out long ago, but she was certainly the prettiest and dearest little creature I ever saw. Just here, John, is an erasure, and the page looks blotted, as though tears might have dropped on it. Poor Aunt Hannah, said John, she loves her friends. I remember she used to visit people by the name of Chilton, but I never connected them with this family. "'There's a daughter,' said Mattie, who was still glancing ahead. "'Did you see the daughter when you were here, John? See what Aunt Hannah says. 
I am glad you are going to stop there, child, for Elsie Chilton's sake. I don't mean the mother, who has been in heaven so long, but the little flower of a daughter she left behind. Just two years old little Elsie was when her mother died, and as beautiful a child as ever I laid eyes on. I asked Robert to let me have her and bring her up as my own, but he was almost angry at me for daring to hint it. All the same, I think the mother would have liked it. She looked at the baby wistfully, and then at me, in a meaning way, which went to my heart. She was younger than I, by a good many years, and looked upon me, something as she might have done to a mother. I think she would have liked me to grandmother her child. But, of course, I could not blame Robert, though if some of the reports I have heard are true, it might have been better for little Elsie's eternal future if he had let me take her. I think Robert Chilton has, without much doubt, grown worldly as he grew older, and there was no occasion for that. He had worldliness enough about him always. I shouldn't wonder if the world and the flesh, and all the rest of it, were making a hard fight for little Elsie, whose mother is waiting for her in heaven. Maybe you and John are sent there to help the child to find the road home. Who knows? Anyhow, I'm sure you'll do your best for her, for my sake, and for the sake of the mother in heaven, and above all, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Oh, I don't know much about her. There's a stepmother, but for all that there's no tragic tale to relate. They are fond of each other, I hear, which may be better for the little Elsie, or it may be worse, according as one studies the character of the stepmother. She is worldly and fashionable, so report says, though both husband and wife are leading members in John's church. Maybe, child, some of the old farmers you have left are as near heaven as some of those who have more culture and live in palaces. But there, I am not going to croak. It is neither farms nor palaces which make the difference. Robert Chilton's treasure may be laid up in heaven, for all I know, but I am afraid he has a good deal of it laid up on earth, John said gravely. Then, after a thoughtful pause, Ought we not to go down, Mattie? They may be waiting for us. In the brightly lighted back parlor their host was waiting to receive them, and his welcome was cordial and hearty in the extreme. He had with him a gentleman of about his own age, who was presented as my friend, Mr. Hartwell, an interested outsider who ought to be inside our church, Mr. Remington. This last with a genial laugh. Then came forward a fair-faced, bright-eyed, beautiful girl, faultlessly dressed in quiet evening costume, who was introduced as my daughter, Elsie. She in turn presented her friend, Mr. Palmer, a young man with hair combed too low on his forehead, and with an eyeglass, which had to Mattie, some way, the air of one being accustomed to being used often offensively. The gentleman bowed low, and was most happy to make their acquaintance. The company at once dropped into coziness, in that indescribable way in which well-bred people know how to manage. The three gentlemen plunged into animated talk, as though they had only been waiting for the minister to come to bear his part. Miss Elsie gave attention to Mrs. Remington after this fashion. Mama begged to be excused for a few minutes. She has a tiresome committee meeting in the library, so important that it could not be postponed without great detriment to the cause. Mama is a dreadfully busy woman, Mrs. Remington. Moreover, she gave Mr. Palmer and myself our orders, to the effect that we were not to bore you with talk, but to let you rest until she came, for she knew you must be very tired. That means that Miss Elsie was to talk and you and I were to listen and be amused, the gentleman explained with a genial smile. Nonsense, laughed Miss Elsie. Mama left no such word as that, you may be sure. 
She knows your capacity for talk too well to have the least hope of your being quiet. By the way, Alec, I have a compliment for you from no less a source than Mrs. Howell Eustace. You must be prepared to be made even vainer than is natural to you. From which, and sundry other remarks in the same strain, Mrs. Remington inferred that Alec was on terms of exceeding intimacy in this house. Almost instinctively she began to imagine a romance, and to try to fit the facts before her to it, led into exceeding interest by Aunt Hannah's letter and appeal. Who and what was this young man, who said Miss Elsie, as though his tongue were hardly used to it, and dropped several times during the next half hour into the more familiar Elsie? Perhaps the present afforded as good an opportunity as she would have for studying him. The three gentlemen grew more and more engrossed in conversation, while the young people chattered together, with an occasional appeal to her, to remind her that she was recognized and that her comfort was being considered. With a table near at hand, covered with choice books and choice pictures, she had but to appear sufficiently interested in them, to turn the leaves, stopping occasionally to study an engraving, and listen, meanwhile, to the conversation about her. It was very desultory, as became the occasion, gliding from one subject to another, with the indifference of those who only talk on such themes, for the sake of passing the time until they can take up some occupation of more interest, and yet with the air of those who found it a pleasure to talk together, no matter what the theme. "'So you smuggled in an hour for Mrs. Belmont's reception last week, after all,' Miss Elsie said. "'I heard that Fern was there. Did you have any visit with her?' "'More than I cared to have,' the gentleman answered quickly. "'Miss Fern made herself ridiculous, I'm sorry to say.' If you have any special influence in that direction, as no doubt you have, for her sake I hope you will exercise it. Fern Redpath made herself ridiculous, said Elsie, with a little incredulous laugh. That is hard to believe. How, pray? Why, it was a dancing party, you know, no other arrangements made for the entertainment of guests. Yet Miss Fern refused to dance, made a wallflower of herself during the short time she stayed, and committed the further discourtesy of leaving conspicuously early, before refreshments were served, indeed. "'How very strange!' exclaimed Elsie. "'What could have been the reason? Fern is a perfect lady, you know, on all occasions.' "'Except this one,' Mr. Palmer said, with emphasis. "'The trouble lies in the fact that she has imbibed some puritanical ideas in a camp meeting she has been attending during the summer, and proposes to eschew dancing, along with several other pomps and vanities. That, at least, is as I heard it reported.' Fern Redpath at a camp meeting? Alec, what in the world do you mean? Why, she went, let me see, she went to Chautauqua for the summer. Well, what is that, and where is it but in the woods? And don't they have meetings all the while? What is that but a camp meeting? Alec, your education is being neglected. Positively, Mamma must know of this. She will be shocked. She is an ardent admirer of Chautauqua. Don't you know she has been there herself for two weeks this summer? And is it possible that you do not know that there is a university there, with professors for everything under the sun, and a grand musical college, and specialists from Europe to teach, and to play, and to lecture? I'm astonished at your ignorance. Mr. Palmer shrugged his handsome shoulders. Fern Redpath is the only exponent of the enterprise I have met, he said, and she has had the effect on me which you discover." I hope your mother may be able to manage her, Miss Elsie. Miss Elsie glanced to another topic. I haven't seen you since your tramp with Mr. Mason. 
How did you both enjoy that? Indifferently well, on my part at least. I can't speak for Mason, though I rather think he enjoys being miserable occasionally. The truth is, Miss Elsie, I've been unfortunate for the last few days, fallen among fanatics, which is worse than falling among thieves in some respects. Mason is developing into a first-class fanatic, in certain lines, dragged me off to a second, or rather a fourth-class hotel, in New York, because it had no wine-room or wine-list, prated of principle before convenience, and all that sort of rubbish. Elsie laughed lightly. I'm not greatly surprised, she said. There's material in Mr. Mason for that sort of thing. But I did not know he carried it to such an extent. That is rather stretching a point, I must confess. Poor creature. With your fastidious taste, how did you survive? He is worse than a lady, Mrs. Remington. Last summer he was positively bearish because at one little country mountain home they gave us steel forks to eat with. This seemed a difficult place for Mrs. Remington to join the conversation. Truth to tell, she hated steel forks herself, but felt a peculiar aversion to admitting it in this presence. Mr. Palmer saved her the trouble. I protest against my weakness being served up to entertain a stranger. It is only fair to wait until Mrs. Remington knows my great worth. Beside, it was on account of the ladies that I was indignant. By the way, Elsie, I brought Howell's last book over tonight. Oh, did you? I'm so glad. I'm especially anxious to read that book, because you do not like it. Do you not like Howells, Mrs. Remington? Very much, assented Mattie, heartily. Does not Mr. Palmer? Well, as a rule I do, but he is sometimes too true to human nature to be heartily enjoyed. What's the use of having a fellow's sins and follies served up for other people to laugh at, however natural they may be? I hope you see, Miss Elsie, by what association of ideas I reached Howells' book so suddenly. I agree with you, said Mrs. Remington gravely, that while I enjoy Howells occasionally, as I would any good study in human nature, I'm sorry that he doesn't put his manifest genius to a higher use, and try to help the work more than I think his books do. Mr. Palmer looked amused. As to helping, I don't think he can be accused of prosing in that direction, and to be entirely frank, I admit that I admire him for it. I'm sometimes tired of having studies in human nature thrust at me, but it is not so bad as to have morals dished up for consideration, as they used to be in the Sunday school books of our childhood. Why, it seems to me that Howells writes with a better purpose than most writers of fiction today, does he not? The appeal was made by Elsie in sweet earnestness to Mrs. Remington, and she, after a moment's hesitation, replied, What do you think of his stories compared with Miss Warner's, for instance? I'm not familiar with her books, Elsie said simply, while Mr. Palmer shrugged his shoulders again. She is the one who writes the goody-goody books, isn't she? with an impossible little girl, and a three times impossible young man in each volume, ad infinitum. Are they impossible young men? The young man before her felt a pair of brown eyes keener than Elsie's leveled at him for a moment. He hesitated, he hardly knew why, with his answer. As the world goes, yes, he said at last. But that is just the point. These young men are not as the world goes. They have risen above the world. "'Too far to belong to it, madam. That is what I say.' "'I know who you mean now,' interposed Elsie. "'I read one of her books once, The Wide, Wide World. "'You know everybody has to read that. "'And really, Mrs. Remington, do you think there are any such men as that John?' 
If there are not, should there not be? Mrs. Remington asked gently, resting those earnest eyes of hers on the young girl with a kind of wistful tenderness, thinking the while of the mother waiting for her in heaven. Is the character any higher than the religion of Jesus Christ calls for? Do you think there is much justification for the reading of fiction at all, from the Christian standpoint? Unless it can hold up for our admiration and our study Christ-like characters, such as there would be in the world if the world followed closely in the footsteps of its master? There was an interruption to their talk, a murmur of voices in the hall, the quick entrance of the lady of the house, cordial greetings, and profuse apologies to the new pastor and his wife for her detention with that tiresome committee, followed by an immediate summons to the dining-room. As Mrs. Remington thoughtfully unfastened from her breast that night a lovely bouquet of Marchenal Neal roses, which had been gallantly presented to her by Mr. Palmer, and placed them very tenderly in water, she said within herself, he is of the earth, earthly, I am afraid, living on a low plane of life, from whatever side one views him. And he very much admires that fair, sweet Elsie. He will win her if he can, I think. Perhaps he has already done so. Also, I think Papa and Mamma Chilton admire him very much indeed. I wonder if John and I have come here to help divide a house against itself. May that possibly be necessary in order to help a child home to her mother? What if we could win them both, win them all? But I'm afraid. Just here, Mrs. Mattie seemed to hear the brave voice of Aunt Hannah saying, Child, don't croak. And she smiled. But the smile hid a sigh, which found vent as soon as the lights were out, and she was once more confronted with the chapter of life to be lived next. End of chapter 15